Hey, Miles, Miles, guess what? What is it, Jay? Cyclops is back. From the past? What? No, from the dead. The teen Cyclops died? No. Oh, oh, wait. Technically, yes, briefly at one point, but that was actually a few years ago. What happened? Older Cyclops blinked out of existence, but he came back when Triage brought Kid Cyclops back, so it was all okay. So Cyclops didn't go back to the past? Yeah, he did. All of the original five kids did. That's gonna be awkward. They sort of wiped their own memories to make it less weird. Wait, how do you sort of wipe a memory? Well, the teen versions lost the memories, but their adult selves got them after a while. But I thought Cyclops' adult self was dead by then. Yeah, but remember how they didn't bury his corpse? Right, because Emma Frost wanted everyone to believe that Black Bolt had killed Cyclops. Exactly. Well, Cable was able to take advantage of that, and- Whoa, um, wait a minute. Wasn't Cable dead? Yes, but not at this point. But actually, that's irrelevant. Why? Different Cable. Like from a different timeline? No, just a younger one. And he was in the present to bring Cyclops back? And to kill the older Cable. I'm not even going to ask. Good call. Anyway, little Cable and a scientist friend embedded a failsafe in the chest of Cyclops' corpse. A failsafe? Little pseudoscientific whatchama thingy with a bit of the Phoenix Force. And that brought Cyclops back? The second time, yeah. The second time? What happened the first time? Oh, Gene revived him. Okay, I guess that makes sense. And then immediately killed him again. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 241 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to us from Emerald City Comic Con. Except due to the magic of time travel, we haven't actually gone to it yet. We're leaving in, what, two days for Seattle? Uh, yeah, we're going to head out there, and then we're going to kill our older selves and um, take their places. That we- Wait, no. Yeah, let's let's not do that. I mean, I'm enjoying the whole Kid Cable plotline, but um, I don't want to be killed by my younger self. My younger self was kind of a douchebag sometimes. See, raising the odds that you'll be killed by him. Crap. Okay, I need to arm myself with some really, really large suitcase-looking guns and pouches. But if you kill your younger self, doesn't that present the, the problem that you might blip out of existence? Oh, this is problematic. Time travel is hard. Right? Well, one thing that's not hard is reading comics we like. Uh, so today, we're going to tell you about some surprisingly quiet X-Factor issues. I mean, quiet is, is on a continuum here. There are explosions. Well, yeah, but we just covered, like, freaking blood ties. It's quieter than that. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. So, it's been a while since we we looked in on X-Factor. I mean, one of their members has been running around with the X-Men, so we know what Pietra's been up to, but what about the rest of the team? Well, as far as the team goes, X-Factor is, of course, the government's own team of mutant heroes. They're brave, they're powerful, and boy howdy, have they been through the ringer. Former New Mutant Wolf Spain has been stuck in a wolf-human hybrid form ever since being experimented on and turned into a mindless mutate during the Extinction Agenda, a state that she reverts to if she ever goes full human. 
And either way, she's genetically bonded to Havoc, again, due to Extinction Agenda stuff, and she can't stay away from him, whether she wants to or not. Quicksilver has been struggling with the usual stuff Quicksilver struggles with, namely his father being supervillain Magneto and his own powers making everything real frustrating. Multiple man got infected with a legacy virus after trying to save a dying Genosian mutate, but nobody knows yet. And as the original Jamie has withdrawn from the world, his duplicates have been getting more and more maladaptive and varied. Strong Guy used to be the roadie for intergalactic rock star Lila Shaney. Yay! But he's starting to really care about his new team X-Factor. Yay! Not that he'd ever let them see his pain past his facade of humor and pranks. Aww. Val Cooper, X-Factor's government liaison, was just revealed to have kept some pretty horrible secrets from X-Factor. Now no one's talking to her. At least Havoc and Polaris are mostly doing okay. Perpetually unfinished dissertations aside, I'm glad nothing bad will ever happen to them. Until this week. And also, uh, Mutant X. Remember, however good things are for Alex Summers at any given point, he has Mutant X looming on the horizon. Aw, but he he does get to meet the one fun Cyclops. There is that, that's a big plus. Also, isn't that where Bloodstorm comes from? It absolutely is. I love me some Bloodstorm. But for now, let's talk about X-Factor number 93, The Longest Day, Part 1. This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Terry Shoemaker, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And this issue takes place between Ileana Rasputin's death and her funeral. Right, and we're going to be keeping track of this as we go, because Ileana Rasputin's funeral is kind of a big plot touchstone in this era, as is, you know, the whole Magneto thing. And we open right around that touchstone as Havoc and Wolfsbane head over to the X-Mansion. They were going to have a meeting with Xavier before Ilyana got seriously sick and died, and Xavier said, well, we can't do anything about Ilyana at this point, so let's still have that meeting, I guess. Hey, there are some nice interactions with um, their old colleagues. One of the things that it's easy to forget is that for all of his general distance from the X-Men identity, Alex was part of the Australia team, which was a weird and really tight-knit group, along with, among others, Colossus. And Alex was also on the X-Men briefly during the Silver Age toward the end of the Silver Age run, or for a long time, if you believe John Byrne's X-Men, The Hidden Years. So he's got a bit of a relationship with Iceman and Archangel here as well. Uh, And with Professor Xavier, who for some reason told Alex and Lorna before anyone else that he was secretly alive that one time he faked his death. Yeah, oh, that was a whole thing. I really liked that um, X-Men Grand Design just sort of retcons that bit away and says that all the X-Men knew that Xavier was faking his death. That works much better. It definitely makes him a much less terrible person in that context. Mm. But anyway. Well, Alex and Rain are here to see Professor Xavier about Rain's mutate problem, about the fact that she's bonded to Alex no matter what she does, and that if she turns back into her fully human form, she goes into a sort of semi-mindless, brainwashed slave state. And Professor Xavier can't help. Um, He tells Rain that her brain has permanently shifted since she spent so much time in hybrid form, and the only real option, and it's just an option, it's not a guarantee, is to go to Muir Island for longer-term treatment. 
And Rain just can't wrap her brain around this. I mean, this is Professor Xavier. This is the guy that always knew what to do. This is the incredibly powerful telepath who ran the school that became her home after she escaped her horrible adoptive father, Reverend Craig. And so... When Rain was pinning all of her hopes on this, when she was so sure that after everything she'd been through, Professor Xavier could take care of it, it is a crushing blow to her. And this is a sign, a side of Rain we haven't really seen in a while. The fact that Rain just trusts authority figures so, so much. And that's gotten a little messed up with Havoc because of the whole genetic bonding thing. But with Professor Xavier, that whole thing stayed pretty pure for her. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, in a lot of ways, and she's talked about it, he's the closest thing she's got to a non-horrible father. And yeah, she really, really trusted him. And so with this, the fact that it's something he can't fix and that it's something that he can't fix in the immediate wake of not being able to save her teammate and friend, Ilyana, has to hit pretty hard. Seriously. What also hits her hard is that Xavier says it's her call whether she's going to undergo the risky treatment that could maybe cure her and maybe fry her brain. And this is new for Rain, too. She's not used to being the one to guide her own destiny. But I do really appreciate that Professor Xavier is like, nah, dude, you're growing up and this is a big deal and I cannot make this call for you and I trust you to make it yourself. Something that comes up in this issue that surprised and yeah, surprised and worried me is that Rain, I forget sometimes, Rain's only 16 at this point. She's still really young, yeah. I mean, part of that, I think, is just the way female characters are drawn in the 90s. Like, she looks uh, mature, shall we say. But yeah, she's just a kid, and she's always been a person who emotionally was younger than her chronological age. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And so the shift in, in how that's gone for her and, and the ways she sort of tried to distance herself from herself in a lot of ways. That's actually a theme we're going to see with her again and again and again, but this is definitely the era where I think it, it starts most clearly. Yeah, I actually am really fascinated by what Rain does way later in the New Mutants Academy X era. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, that, that is a fascinating underloved run. I'm really excited about getting to it in like 20 years <laughs> or whenever it is. So Someday. while Havoc does offer to help, Rain basically says, dude, I know it's not your fault, but you're not part of the solution. You're part of the problem. And this is a character growth bit I love in Rain. Like the fact that Alex is an authority figure, yes, and she's saying, I just need you to please get out of my way because you may not have done anything wrong, but dude, this is kind of about you in all the ways that I don't want it to be. Well, he's not just an authority figure. He's an authority figure with whom she's effectively bonded you know, involuntarily and to whom she was deferring even more than usual. Like he's, he's got, you know, she's got a double set of, of, of conditioning working against her here and seeing her starting to stand up to him and stand up against that in the last few issues of, of X Factor and again here is so good. It is. But let's go over to X-Factor headquarters. So Lorna, Polaris, she's had a lot of people take over her mind, like a surprising number of people. So she really likes being alone. But in a way, she's going to be the focus of all four of these issues. She's sort of the connective tissue of the team. And I think that's a role that works really well for her. For instance, she's one of the only people that knows that Madrox is extra super fucked up. She's one of the only people really paying attention. And she figures that's probably from that time he accidentally killed John Lizard, Lizard Mellencamp, but um, she'll quickly figure out, not nah, the legacy virus. 
But for now, the biggest problem right at her face is Pietro Maximoff fuming about the new costume he's been assigned by the government. You know, if I were Pietro Maximoff, I would also be fuming about that costume. It's very bad. I mean, the government wants him to look like a member of the team because, you know, he's never had the X-Factor uniform. But I love the way he responds to this pouch, electronics, armor, doodad-covered supersuit. It's grotesque. I look like something out of a, a comic book. What is the point of all of these ludicrous accessories? To which Guido responds, There is no point, Pietro. It's just cool. Don't you think it's cool, Lorna? Unbearably. Quicksilver ain't having it. I am not cool! I am the fastest man on the face of the Earth. And he runs so fast that all of the junk flies off, and then he's just in, like, a super sleek X-Factor-branded bodysuit, and he actually looks pretty awesome. But I love this part, even though I will freely admit that 11-year-old Miles was kind of sad that I wasn't going to get to see Quicksilver running around with all that cool tech. Man, I gotta say, though, Pietro uh, yelling, I am not cool, is, as the kids say, big mood. <laughs> And Quicksilver's not the only one with a new costume. You remember how at the end of X-Factor 87, Polaris made, like, a super sexy red and gold outfit to show that she could be really sexy even though she had body image issues? Apparently the government was like, no, that's not all right. To quote, inordinately provocative and conducive to moral subversion. So they gave her a new one, and it looks pretty rad. It's just sort of a nice blue and yellow bodysuit. It's actually one of the costumes I most think of when I think Polaris. And in defense of their design for Quicksilver, once he gets all of the horrible accessories off of it, it's actually a very solidly designed um, costume as well. These are a lot like the old first-generation X-Factor X design costumes, um, just tightened up a little bit. Yeah, they're pretty rad. Meanwhile, meanwhile, you remember that thing we strangely brought up in the previously on X-Factor section about how Guido used to work for Lila Cheney? Well... no. I don't remember that at all. Well, listeners, if you want to, like, rewind a lot and then you lose your place, you totally could. So Guido's taking a shower, and he's interrupted in the shower by a shadowy, sexy lady silhouette who then teleports him naked into a packed intergalactic arena concert. And it is, of course, Lila Cheney, who justifies the naked giant man teleportation by simply saying, Why should I be the only one to enjoy the view? No, the strong implication here and throughout the scene is that this is the sort of thing that they used to do, that she had reason to believe that he would be as amused by this whole situation as she was. Like, she's pretty baffled by his responses throughout, um, which helps a lot with a scene that would otherwise just be really fucked up and uncomfortable. Exactly. You get the impression that while Guido's a little bit embarrassed about showing little Guido around, like, it's mostly just that he's annoyed that Lila doesn't understand that he's not the same person he used to be. Yeah, it's it's less, you know, something horrible has happened than, damn it, my old party friends have showed up and all I want to do is, is you know, marathon watch a TV show and maybe have a beer and play some Settlers of Catan. I've got a real life now. Friends. And those friends need me. They've lost someone close to them. They're hurting. And I want to be there for them. What do you do at night, Guid? Sit around with your pals discussing rainforests while national public radio plays in the background? And she teleports him, still naked, home, where he falls through a skylight and basically tells Polaris, don't ask. And back at the Pentagon, Val Cooper, uh, who, as you may recall, had fallen significantly out of favor with the team for a lot of very good reasons, 
is, as it turns out, leaving for good. Uh, she is no longer the team's government liaison. That job has gone to someone who wa- who pulled a lot of strings to get it. Her re- and her replacement is Forge. Yay! I love Forge. At least when he's not being a total dick to Storm. But here he's not. I actually really like the Forge that we see in X Factor. Yeah, it. It's easy to forget that Forge is basically a government contractor 90% of the time. Like, that's what he does. He builds weird gadgets for the government, and they pay him egregious amounts of money, and he uses that to maintain his ridiculous, ridiculous home. Well, I mean, last we checked, his ridiculous home was very thoroughly blown up by Trevor fucking Fitzroy. But, you know, he'll have a new one at some point. Exactly, because again, you know, ludicrously lucrative government contracts. Mm -hmm. But now he is also... X Factor's government liaison, and I really appreciate that their government liaison is now finally a fellow mutant. Agreed, yeah. I mean, admittedly, Forge is a mutant who has very much worked for the human establishment, but he's also, I think, proven his bona fides as a mutant activist and an X-Man, at least in the last, you know, few years. Well, and he is also, and again, still a mutant. Yes, well, there's certainly that. Very important as well. And that brings us to X Factor number 94, Evening Where, The Longest Day, Part 2. So this is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by J.M. Dematis, penciled by Paul Ryan, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And it takes place after Ileana's funeral, which I guess means that Rain was at Muir Isle during the funeral? I, no, I, I don't buy that. She totally would have made time to be at Ileana's funeral. I mean, obviously she's going through a crisis right now, but, but come on, it's Ileana's funeral. I mean, again, she does have a lot of stuff going on, and it's really crisis-y. And she did, you know, swing by the mansion, so she might feel like she's said what she needed to say and seen the people she needed to see, and no, I don't, I don't buy it either, actually. But that's what we've got. Um, and it opens with Lorna and Alex out at dinner, and in fact, talking about Rain, and I gotta say... I literally never get tired of people telling Alex to shut up and stop making Rain's stuff all about him. Never. Right. I mean, his intentions are good, but but come on, Alex. Sometimes the whole, like, self-loathing, guilt-trippy thing you do just takes other people's agency away. Yeah, no, this is, this is my second favorite song after Professor Xavier getting yelled at by his former students. Right. Also, as Lorna rightly calls him out on, he's kind of acting like Cyclops. And, as we all know, Cyclops is everyone's favorite work-life balance cautionary tale, so it hits him. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some douchebags in the restaurant who are being, like, all anti-mutant bigoted, and they deliberately spill a drink on the mutants and talk about how they should put up a screen so they don't have to see him. And Lorna just says, dude, this is bullshit, and magnetically lifts up the mustachioed bigot demanding an apology. And this is the confident, confrontational Lorna that I love. A lot of people talk about Polaris like she doesn't have a well-defined personality. She totally does. And she also has a well-defined different personality in the Gifted TV show, which is my favorite Polaris ever. Although I could absolutely see that Polaris doing pretty much exactly this as well. True, although she might, you know, kill the guy. And, well, she, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about some car throwing that's happening later in this arc um, that, that echoes some, some similar encounters. Maybe not similar encounters, but, but similar consequences on the gifted. Anyway, um, she, you know, she, she shakes Bob the Bigot around a little bit, uh, makes him apologize, and the patrons are surprisingly split over the matter, and a brawl breaks out, everyone gets arrested— and Forge is pretty sanguine about all of it, to Val's immense shock. 
I don't have the time or the inclination to fume. These people have been under a great deal of stress lately. What with the Camp Hayden affair, Liana's funeral. If they needed to let off some steam, it's understandable. I've got bigger issues to worry about. And those bigger issues specifically are the plight of mutants in the United States, which, unlike Val, he's actually actively concerned with. Man, Forge is so great. I mean, uh, sometimes. As a leader of X-Factor, as compared to Valerie Cooper, he's fantastic. Yeah, just don't, like, you know, date him. Listeners, that's your lesson for the episode. I mean, that's been your lesson for a number of episodes. But speaking of Lorna being awesome, despite Forge's call for no press, Lorna actually tips some reporters off and gives a brief press conference outside the police station. I'm going to make a brief statement, after which we will not be taking any questions. What happened today was the result of small minds, bigoted hearts. It was the result of an America so frustrated and fragmented, so lost in the fear of what's other, that hatred has become an accepted means of expression. Well, I can assure every one of you that no amount of hatred is going to make us go away. I think I speak for all of us in X-Factor when I say that we're dedicated to a vision of an America where diversity is respected, where divisions of religion, race, gender, sexual orientation, and genetic structure will simply cease to matter. Maybe we're dreamers. Maybe we're fools. But whatever we are, we're here, and you'd better get used to it. Uh, That last line is a direct reference to one of the chants of direct action organization, Queer Nation. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. Um, They they were active around the era that this issue came out in the early 90s. And that makes me so happy. Although, man, I gotta say, you remember back in the 90s when comics weren't political? I miss that. (laughs) I love that that, that, that joke just never dies. Right? But this is an interesting speech because there's absolutely there we're here where queer get used to it, but at the same time, I don't know, I, I'm looking at what Lorna says about looking forward to a day when categorizations don't matter, and that almost does seem like it has a little bit of a, a pre-echo to Havoc's M-Day speech in Uncanny Avengers years later. I don't know, maybe not. What do you think? Mm, but she specifically frames it in context of an America where diversity is respected. Not ignored. That's not ignored, true, yeah. right. She's not, she's not arguing for homogeny. She's not arguing for ignoring those distinctions. She's arguing for them to not make significant social differences or differences in terms of, of you know, rights and privilege. I mean, I think that the fact that she specifically frames that in terms of being pro-diversity pretty well takes care of that. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense and I feel more comfortable about it. And honestly, this is one of my favorite just concise summations of what Xavier's dream should be that I've seen in this era. Don't be a dick, man. (laughs) Be excellent to each other and party on. I don't know how Xavier feels about partying on. I mean, he probably parties on in his own quiet way. He reads some Tennyson and drinks some scotch and scowls at Jubilee. Well... Rain and Guido also party on in their own way, in this case, by having a big brawl in a small airplane to the deep consternation of its pilot. Now, in their defense, um, the jet does have a mini danger room installed. Why would you build that? Why would you ever, ever do that? That's like having a jungle gym in the back of your passenger jet. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible to do. I'm just saying maybe it's not the best plan. It's way worse than having a jungle gym in the back of your passenger jet. Like, that would be relatively no big deal. Okay, a jungle gym with a giant muscly guy and a werewolf. Who are actively throwing each other around to the extent that it's affecting the functioning of the plane. 
Oh, X-Factor, you barely functional adults, you. Wait, I thought part of the point of the danger room, or of any given danger room, is that it allows for use of power and for brawling and for all of that stuff without disrupting the surrounding structure. Oh, everyone who makes decisions about how X-Factor runs, you barely functional adults, you. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that one. (laughs) So... As it turns out, Rain asked Guido to come with her because she figured out that he's dealing with chronic pain um, and felt like he might kind of understand part of what she's struggling with, with the whole mutate thing. Uh, He still refuses to acknowledge any of that, but they have some really good moments. It's really nice, and it just brings me right back to X-Factor 87, where Guido talks about how the worst possible thing you can ever have somebody show toward you is pity. Like, as much as he's so close to X-Factor, and as much as he told Lila Cheney off, while naked, in space, uh, because she didn't understand that he had a genuine relationship with him, he still won't acknowledge it to X-Factor. Oh, Guido, my heart bleeds for you. I think Guido has a lot of trouble recognizing the difference between empathy or camaraderie and pity. In this case, that Rain specifically reached out to him not because she feels bad for him, but because she suspects that he might be someone who could understand a little bit of what she's going through, and especially something that's been intensely isolating for her. Yeah, I I really love the dynamic the two of them have, and honestly, that's what makes years and years and years later the way the hell on earth war ends in X-Factor that much more tragic. Oh god, yeah, that's heartbreaking. Oh, what's also heartbreaking is after Guido drops Rain off at Muir Island, she transforms back into her human self, and we see a Rain Sinclair we haven't seen in literally years. A slight girl with short, spiky red hair, and almost immediately a blank look on her face because she goes right into that mindless mutate state. And Jay, you were talking about how it's easy to forget that Rain is 16. In this panel, it is so clear that she is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And Guido kisses her on the forehead because the only time he can ever show closeness or emotion is when people are mindless mutates. Or unconscious. Or both. Or both. Oh, feelings everywhere. You know who's really bad at feelings? Quicksilver. But he's actually trying. Um, At the advice of his dubiously qualified therapist, Leonard Sampson, Pietro has decided to take up clay sculpture and also introspection. Uh, He makes a lot of stuff and he has a lot of feelings. Most of those feelings are about his own liminality, um, the extent to which he has been a member of a lot of groups but never really felt like part of anything. And as he's going through this, he's working his, he's, he's refining his skills. He's, you know, learning sculpture very, very fast because he's a very fast guy. And he ends up building a beautiful, huge life-size sculpture of his, his wife and daughter and decides that maybe he should go be with them. And this is a really nice setup for Blood Ties and Quicksilver's exit from the team. Remember, this is before he goes off into space to fight Magneto, before he goes to Genosha to deal with Fabian Cortez and Exodus and all that. Again, a disadvantage of the way we decided to cover Fatal Attractions is that chronology goes a little bit back and forth in our coverage here. But I like that they were setting up what was coming, that it doesn't feel like an abrupt departure for the reader, even if it will feel that way for the other members of X-Factor. You know, something I actually like about doing this stuff out of order in the way that we have is that we've been able to see, and we've been able to see in a lot of depth what this stuff is building to, what it's going to connect to, and what the payoff is going to be, which in a lot of ways makes the earlier buildup a lot more rewarding to go back and examine. 
But Quicksilver's clay-filled introspection is introspect is interrupted by first one, then another, Madrox, all of whom are dupes taking turns sitting with the severely depressed Madrox Prime. And what I like here is that all the different Madroxes, or Madri, as they will soon be called in Age of Apocalypse, they're all very much different facets of Madrox Prime's personality, and this is going to be expanded upon hugely in the much later Peter David X-Factor run, and that's where Madrox becomes one of my favorite, favorite characters. Now, there's one other thing that we didn't mention, something that happens outside of Lorna's press conference outside the police station. There's someone who's been watching her since the restaurant, admiring her and sort of commenting on what she's doing. And here says, yeah, it's a damn shame he's going to have to kill her. This is random. This is the government assassin who we saw a while ago, and he's about to play a much, much larger role in the story. In X-Factor number 95, Fatal Repulsions. Okay, that's clever. Eh. This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by J.M. DeMattis, penciled by Greg Lesniak, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And let's just do a very brief recap of what Random's deal is. So, Random is a big dude who looks like he is carved really awkwardly from bone. He is actually a sort of shape-shifting mercenary. He can turn his body into weapons. He can adapt to all sorts of attacks. He can probably do something that involves energy because it's the 90s and every new character could. He's also much later going to turn out to be a fairly young kid, a, a teen or a tween, who has forced, who has made himself look much older so that he can you know, earn a living. And the person he's on the phone with periodically who is set up as as you know, sounding like his girlfriend or his partner is actually going to be someone who's basically a parent figure. Yeah, he's uh, surprisingly fascinating for a character that I'm pretty sure was created just to be a parody of Lobo. And what we know right now about him is that he is a mercenary. He attacked X-Factor earlier, and they managed to uh, quote-unquote defeat him by asking how much he was being paid and asking if they could just make a higher offer for him to join up with them and leave him alone. To which he said, yeah, sure. But he's still just as much a mercenary, and so as soon as Polaris meets him on the roof figuring, hey, former ally, I wonder what he wants, he zaps her with his arm gun and blows her jacket off, although her brand new blue and yellow costume is completely intact. So, I don't know, just like, maybe sip the foam off the top of your beer. I I guess, you could drink the top layer of a Laird shot. You have options, is my point. But... Thankfully, Random's Lamborghini, complete with the vanity plate that just says Random, which is a detail I love because that's totally something Random would do, it's nearby, so Polaris smashes the car into Random three times over the course of the fight. Okay, so we know Random is much younger than he looks, and this detail reminds me uh, of of being a kid and thinking vanity plates were the coolest thing and wondering why all grown-ups didn't get them. Okay, this is really going to date us, but I remember when the coolest thing was not just a vanity plate, but was when you were too young to have a car, but you maybe had your own phone line if you were lucky, and you could set whatever answering machine greeting that you wanted. This was like the hottest thing in the world in the mid-90s, if you were our age. Yeah, and yours was just you and our friend Dave shrieking incoherently in unison. I wish I still had a recording of that. It was amazing. It was really scary. Because (laughs) I was a horrible musical theater nerd mine was just speak yes i remember that i really like lobdell and dematis's polaris like between the speech before and this i just love how much shit she does not take from anyone and sure enough she beats the crap out of random and finally gets some mild answers yeah so finally random admits that 
his client, uh, the one who hired him to test her and, if possible, to take her down, is a government agency. He won't say which one, but it's definitely Uncle Sam. God damn it, Uncle Sam. You dork. Yeah, uncool. Well, speaking of governmental people who are less dorks because they have mustaches and ponytails, you remember how Forge runs X-Factor now? Well, he's talking to Havoc, although he is being kind of confrontational. Sorry, I'm kind of stuck on less dorks because they have mustaches and ponytails. Hey, mustaches and ponytails are awesome, as we discussed a couple of episodes ago talking about Louis St. Croix. Yeah, if you're Sam Elliott. Or Samuel Clemens. I think we might have conflated the two in that episode. No, we just pointed out that it's a similar look that both pull off well. Well, regardless, Havoc feels kind of weird because Val just left without saying goodbye. Like, yeah, there was bad blood, but he says, dude, she was one of them. And Forge doesn't endear himself to his new squad leader by saying where Val went. That is classified. Yeah, Forge, um, Forge is not here to make friends. So after refusing to tell Alex where Val went, his next move is to demand that Alex justify why the five of them should get to stay on the team, why he shouldn't just ditch them all and start from scratch. So it's basically time for a miniature version of X-Factor 87 as we get a little analysis of each character. But Alex first says, wait a minute, the five of us? Don't you mean the six of us, like Quicksilver, who's also a member of this team? Nope, says Forge. Quicksilver is on extended leave of absence. He's off doing the Blood Ties crossover. And in fact, Quicksilver's gone from the team. He's not going to be back in X-Factor for decades, and once he does come back, it'll be as like a Terrigen mist homeless junkie. It's very complicated. But effectively, this is Quicksilver's exit from the book, and I gotta say, I completely buy that Pietro Maximoff is somebody who would just leave his longtime team without saying a goddamn thing. That's because every team that he's on feels like a longtime team to him. That's a really good point. He's on for two days, and everyone else saw him for five minutes, and hes it's been interminable for him. So his sense of what constitutes a long-term relationship has to be pretty skewed at this point. For a fucking fascinating look at this, the Quicksilver No Surrender miniseries from six months or a year ago back was brilliant. Also, he gets a turtle. Also, he gets a turtle! I love that turtle. Named Mr. Dibbles. Mr. Dibbles. <laughs> Anyway, so Alex now, with no preparation, has to basically justify the existence of his admittedly incredibly dysfunctional team, and to his credit, he does a decent job. I especially like what he just manages to pull out of his ass about Wolfsbane. That girl is the glue that holds this team together. The very fact that she's from another country allows her to bring a uh, a fresh perspective to our problems, makes us... Makes us see ourselves as part of something bigger, a uh, global village, as opposed to a, um, narrow American milieu. And Forge rightly points out that Alex is probably one of those dudes that could totally snow his way through a college paper. But not a dissertation. (laughs) But not a dissertation. So, okay, on to hard mode, strong guy and multiple man. And I gotta say, I'm really glad it wasn't my job to justify these guys because I love them as characters, but they're, like, anti-professional. Yeah, but he's not justifying their professionalism. He's justifying their efficacy, which he does fairly well. Strong Guy is incredibly powerful and incredibly committed. He's been a really effective member of the team, and Madrox, um... 
Madrox is good for when you need to get a lot of stuff done at once, is basically Alex's final um, explanation. And it, it flies. Well, he, especially because he says he's good for when you need to get a lot of stuff done at once and only pay one salary, which uh, works pretty well. But I love that during this whole conversation, it's just slide after slide in the background of like Guido and Madrox, like making weird faces or at one point um, holding up a shadow puppet in front of a senator while they're at a press conference as Val Cooper like struggles to hold him back. Like they're just such goofballs. I love them so much and I'm so glad I'm not their boss. I would argue that they take the United States government of 1993 exactly as seriously as it deserves. Now, back in the real world, Guido and one of Madrox's dupes are at a bar with a whole cheerleading team. I love that in X Factor we have so many scenes where there's probably a big story behind them and we're never going to get to learn it. And they actually call Madrox Prime trying to get him to come out and make more dupes, and he is even more fucked up at home. Drawn shades, sitting in his trench coat, in a chair, silent, hair shadowing his face. Madrox is having a bad time. Madrox is having a real bad time, and it's only going to get worse. As for Polaris, I mean, Forge points out, well, she keeps walking away from all of these X-teams. How do we know we can count on her? And Alex counters that, yeah, and she always comes back. She's walked away because of things like Malice and the Shadow King. And then she comes back. He actually gets really pissed off. Yeah. Justly. And Alex figures, all right, well, now it's my turn. I have to justify myself. And Forge says, nah, dude, I know a good leader when I see one. And also I, Miles, know an amazing shampoo commercial set of golden lustrous locks when I see them. So this artist, Mr. Lesniak, draws a cornucopia of blonde glory issuing forth from Alex's government-issued facial buttresses. I really wanted this specific hair when I was a kid. Oh man, see, the hair that I wanted and still want is Polaris's hair as drawn by Larry Stroman. Oh, that would be rad. I mean, you'd have to grow it out, like, a lot, but I feel like most people would look good if they could get hair like that. I don't need, like, all of it. Okay, just, you know, a, a little lock of it. Yeah. That seems reasonable. But as they toast with champagne, presumably governmental champagne, Forge says, all right, you passed, you guys are a team, and here's the deal. Val Cooper was always trying to call the shots. I don't want to do that. You guys know what you're doing. You're an effective super team. What I will do is take the heat from any government higher-ups because that's what I'm good at. So let's fucking do this. That's a really good way to be a boss, especially in this context. I would argue that the team. this is a team that probably needs some oversight, and encouraging them to run their decisions by an adult is not a bad thing. But Forge's basic approach, granting them an autonomy— Acknowledging that Alex in particular was chosen because they trust his decision-making skills is, I think, a really good one. And yeah, it is part of a boss's job to do exactly what he's doing. Speaking of autonomy, or lack thereof, as Havoc and Lorna, having both had long days, finally meet up for some sexy times, they're interrupted by Rain Sinclair in werewolf form, tears streaming from her eyes and foam streaming from her mouth. She ran away from your island because she couldn't stand to be away from Havoc even for the duration of the treatments, and she hates herself for it. And god damn, her life is so bad. I feel so much, well, I know Guido hates pity, but pity for Rain. Did she run back across the Atlantic Ocean? It's unclear, but however she got there, I'm sure it was very sad. Oh, kiddo. Well, that takes us to X-Factor number 96 in the beginning. 
This is written by J.M. DeMattis, and this is his first issue as solo writer, which he will remain for the next year. It's penciled by Greg Lusniak, inked by Al Milgram, and colored by Glynis Oliver. And we were just talking about Greg Lusniak's incredible Havoc hair. It's even better this time. Honestly, it's probably a good thing that Lusniak did not become the regular artist because Havoc would have ended up like giving Medusa of the Inhumans a run for her money. And maybe that would be distilling his brand a little bit, his personal brand. Yeah, Alex's personal brand does not generally involve shampoo commercial hair. Although I'm willing to, to say that he should have, have room to grow into that as a character. Yeah, you know, add add something onto the stack of plasma blasts and hypervigilance. Don't you mean plasma blasts, hypervigilance, and a master's degree? <laughs> womp womp. We open with Alex's private journal as he talks through the team responding to an attack of some kind on the Kennedy Center. Um, and a historical note, he refers back to, quote, that mess at the World Trade Center, unquote, and um, what he would have been referring back to at this point was a bombing in February of 1993. Oh, gotcha. I just figured he was talking about when X-Force fought the Juggernaut and Black Tom and one of the towers got destroyed back in early X-Force. That's the thing with with, uh, books like this. It's kind of hard to tell when they're referencing continuity and when they're referencing history. In this case, the fact that what they're responding to is a terrorist attack of unclear origins makes me think that it's the bombing and not the juggernaut fight. Also, it's been a really long time since the juggernaut fight. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But after finally getting that affirmation from Forge, Alex is even more proud of his team. We may have started out as relative strangers, nervous and uncertain, trying to hide our fear behind a barrage of jokes, but we've grown. Maybe we're not the well-oiled machine that Xavier's blue and gold teams are, and maybe some people shrug us off as oddballs and eccentrics. But in all my time nursemating this motley crew, I've never been more proud of them. And I kind of buy it. like, And the way this, this set of pages is put together with just Alex's narration, his journal, over these scenes of X-Factor silently, effectively doing their jobs, like... Yeah, these are the people that I kind of want working for the powers that be to make the world a better place. Yeah, I mean, X-Factor is weird and awkward and really, really, really bad at dealing with authority, but they're also very, very effective at things like crowd control and responding to crises. In a lot of ways, this is a team that is much, much better at dealing with stuff like this than they are at supervillain attacks, actually. Yeah, and I think that's part of why I like these four issues so much, because we do see some, like, super stuff. Like, there's the fight between Polaris and Random, there's the way the issue closes out that we'll get to shortly, but by and large, this is just them being people. Being people interpersonally, being people in terms of interacting with the public, and that's I think that I think is what X-Factor should be. We always talked about how X-Factor would work really well as basically a workplace comedy, and that's something that J.M. DeMattis, and I think to a lesser extent, uh, Scott Lobdell, also seem to get. So, previously inaccessible Forge, who has not been answering calls for the last four days, shows up in the aftermath of the Kennedy Center attack to demand an immediate, immediate meeting for a briefing. According to Forge, the attack wasn't a random incident. It's part of something much bigger, although Forge still doesn't know what. But guess who does? Is it a mysterious lady lighting candle after candle and speaking in riddles off-panel? It totally is. I, I bet she lives in Portland. That seems like a very Portland-y thing to do. I, she's got a lot going on. We'll, we'll, we'll get back to her. Um, but back at home, 
Rain and Lorna bond over a late night snack. Um, and you you mentioned, you know, Lorna's Lorna's issues and her sort of consistent body image issues. And she basically says at this point that, you know, she's decided that there are things she'd ra- she'd rather obsess over, that, that she's she's just sort of shelving that and dealing with other stuff for now. And her arc in that context, Lorna's arc in terms of mental health over the first, you know, couple dozen issues of X Factor is one that on the whole I find pretty believable. I would agree, yeah. And I I enjoy that her issues are not – they're not glossed over and they're not sensationalized. They're just a part of her character, and I think that's the right way to do it. And again, going back to her portrayal on The Gifted, I think The Gifted fucking nails that with with her too. Yeah, somewhat more overtly in some ways. Yeah. Rain, though, oh, Rain is so fucked up. She's tearing into a bunch of roast beef, just getting blood all over her face. And remember, she's stuck in wolf form. And as she eats and as she sort of goes back and forth being either grateful for Lorna's support or furious with her because Alex is in love with Lorna and not Rain, you see her wolf form just shift from almost puppy dog cartoonish with this rising panic in her eyes as she tears into this flesh to like I don't know like the most terrifying black spiral dancer ever from werewolf the apocalypse and just the degree to which she is out of control and knows that she's out of control and hates that she's out of control and can't do anything about it is so sad like rain is totally hitting bottom at this part of her arc jamie's dupes meanwhile are getting weirder and weirder and weirder more varied, less in control. There are a lot around at any given time. There's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of confrontation. And actual Jamie is locked in his room, reading, drenched in sweat, and uh, trying to avoid the entire crowd. You remember Random, though, how he got his ass kicked by Polaris, who hit him not once, not twice, but three times with his now shattered car? So he actually goes to pick up the payment from his governmental shadowy client— and, Jay, I think you wrote in the notes that either um, the person's in Sinister Shadows or they are, in fact, a chair with arms and a torso. I guess it could be either way. It's really, um, you really can't tell from the art. The jury is still out. I am, I am going to conditionally start referring to the shadowy figure as Chairman. Excellent. Not quite as cool as Chairface Chippendale, but what can you do? Yeah, few are. <laughs> but Lorna's not done getting attacked by a bunch of goons because a bunch show up when she's out for a walk to clear her head. And it is this incredible, gigantic fight scene of Lorna, this one-woman magnetic army, going up against these trained soldiers, and they take her down and she gets back up, and they take her down and she gets back up. I really love that this book makes it so clear who the team's powerhouse is. Yeah. And at the end... She, they've got her significantly outnumbered, and she basically says, okay, yeah, you might take me down, but a lot of you guys are going to die trying if you do. But she gets teleported away into a room with a whole bunch of candles, a whole bunch of, I'm going to go ahead and say probably patchouli and or sage scented smoke, and a tall, beautiful woman in fancy armor. This is the same woman who was chanting earlier, possibly from Portland, Oregon, in like a yoga studio or something. And she says to Lorna, Despite the fierceness of your words, Lorna Dane, you are not a murderer. Yours is a soul too sensitive for this evil and corrupted age. Release it and embrace the age to come, an age of hope for man, mutant, and the new humanity. So this character is Haven. She's 
got a lot going on. So much that the next five issues of X-Factor are going to deal with her. But we'll get to that another time. I gotta say, though, this arc right here, I don't even know if you could call it an arc, because there's not really one consistent thread going through it. It's just a lot of simultaneous plot threads. It's a lot of back-and-forth storytelling, a lot of character development. I mean, I know that... Scott Lobdell and Jam DeMattis' run of X-Factor isn't as well-remembered as a lot of the other ones, but I actually really, really like it. Yeah, no, I think it's been consistently really solid. The other folks that are solid are you, our listeners, and you've got questions. You sure do. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, What do you recommend when the recent trend in comics to raise awareness of mental illness, especially of depression, only makes it worse? I found it's made my personal suicidal ideation problems much worse. And the condescending reactions of creators and fans who insist it's super important high art aren't helping. I've stopped reading actively, but even my fr- in my friend circles, they don't understand what my problem is. By the way, hotlines have done squat for me too. What do you suggest? Okay, first of all, Anonymous, I am so glad that you're still here and so glad that you're still reaching out. I'm sorry you haven't had a lot of success when you have so far, but I'm really glad you're still trying and I really, really hope that you find the connections that you need. Now, neither of us is a mental health professional, and I want to put that right out first and foremost. So what I'm mostly going to address here is the practical end of your question. And what I would suggest is reaching out to other comics readers, and especially ones active in spaces like AO3 and other communities that use and discuss content warnings, and ask around for someone willing to pre-review comics for you um, for that specific content and anything else that you that that you're having trouble with, and to give you a heads up if it's something you might want to avoid or find triggering, whether or not the stories in question are high art, um, anonymous, it is absolutely, absolutely reasonable to want to avoid media meant to raise awareness of things of which you are already painfully aware. Like there is there is no moral obligation to consume those things, especially if they're things that are causing you harm, which it sounds like they are. And if you're able to find someone who can do that, who can, who can pre-read stuff for you or just, just give you a, a heads up about that content, um, then if you do end up choosing to read, read the, those stories regardless, you'll still be going in with, the for, with foreknowledge that you can use to better prepare yourself for what you'll be encountering and to make sure that you'll be safe. Um, in terms of your friends not taking you seriously, that's really shitty of them, and I'm really sorry. And... I wish I had a better and more, or more useful thing to say than that, but they should, and I really hope that they start to. Very much so. So yeah, good luck, Anonymous. We're rooting for you. So we are experts, but we are not universal experts. Our field is, is fairly narrow and fairly specific, and sometimes we reach outside of it and we make mistakes, and when we do that, we are lucky enough to have listener, listeners who collectively have a much broader range of expertise than we do and who are willing to take the time to explain the stuff that we sometimes miss. So Caleb, who's an epidemiologist and infection preventionist, wrote in to let us know that we'd misidentified the state of the legacy virus infected mu- mutates on Genosha as quarantine when it's actually isolation. I had no idea there was a difference between those two things, and I think this stuff is really fascinating, so I thought you, you all might want to hear the answer um, to it, too. Um, so this is, this is what Caleb wrote in, which we are sharing with permission. People are isolated if they are already infected with disease and we want to keep them away from people who could become sick. Quarantine is when a person has been exposed to an infectious disease, but we're not sure if they themselves have become infected. They're quarantined for a period of time until we know one way or the other. 
This is usually done if the person could spread the disease before their own symptoms begin. For example, measles is highly infectious and can sometimes be spread by a person before symptoms begin. If a child has been around an infected person, they should be kept at home and out of school until sufficient time has passed that healthcare providers can know they didn't contract measles themselves. This would be quarantine. If the child develops a rash and shows signs of measles, they're kept home or in the hospital until they're no longer considered infectious. That's isolation. And this is especially relevant information, as a lot of relatively, um, you know, vintage diseases are returning with a vengeance. Vaccinate your kids if you are medically able to do so. For serious. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and entities, and today, the mic is is going to the outgoing X-Factor government liaison, uh, Sexy Dr. Valerie Cooper. Is that Sexy Dr. Valerie Cooper or Dr. Sexy Valerie Cooper? I don't know, but I feel like Dracula would. But anyway... Colleen and Julie... Aphraim, was it? I'm flattered, but you must know how busy I am. What with... Oh, you heard about Forge taking over as X-Factor's liaison... Such poor information security in this office. Well, I suppose it has been since that lunchtime quickie during the Carter administration that I got laid, or since I took a lunch break for that matter. All right then, Colleen and Julie. I'm game. Right after you fill out this request for amorous contact form packet. Yes, one for each of you. And in... mm, triplicate. Oh, and once you're done, I'll slip into something a little more comfortable... Well, you get your paperwork notarized. Oh, you used blue ink instead of black. I'm afraid you'll have to start entirely over. Now, I have a meeting with the Secretary of State, but maybe I can squeeze you in sometime next week. Fax me. And with that, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, produced by Matt Hunter and notarized in triplicate. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify at explainthexmen.com and at your local government office. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and forms 1B, 1C, and 1L. Our show is 100% listener, not government, supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. You don't have to fill out any paperwork for that. Next week, your friendly neighborhood podcast welcomes a friendly neighborhood wall crawler. For Spider-Man and X-Factor crossover, Shadow Games. Shadow Games.